It's such a huge blessing to be able to watch a video like that and hear testimonies like that and think about the Lord's faithfulness for the last 10 years to this particular local church. It's, it's something else entirely, though, and something orders of magnitude bigger to think back 2,000 and 3,000 and 6,000 years and think about the Lord's faithfulness to his people throughout history, throughout the whole story of the Bible. And so, you know, like Josh said, he, he and the elders of this church didn't want this evening to just be a thankfulness to God and a remembrance before God of what he's done in the last 10 years, but a remembrance before God and thankfulness to God for what he's done for thousands of years for his people. He wanted our focus to be on Jesus Christ this morning, because there's nothing more important than we can do than to think about who Jesus is, and so that's what I want to do with you tonight. In, In order to do that, in order to think about who our great Savior is to us and what our great Savior has done for us, I want to take us back to the edge of a river, probably about 1,997 years ago, where a very strange man had been preaching for several days. It was out in the Judean countryside at the Jordan River, and this man had a name. He was known as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. Nobody knew exactly where he came from, but he was strange. He he dressed in clothes made out of camel's hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Locusts he somehow caught. Nobody knew exactly how. The honey he found out in the wilderness. What they did know, however, is that having clothes made out of camel's hair and eating something like locusts and honey was resonant of another guy that they knew from the stories from the Old Testament, their own scriptures. It was resonant of a guy that they knew as the prophet Elijah, who did some of the very same things. See, John the baptizer was out in the river preaching the coming of the kingdom of God, and he was doing so as really the last Old Testament prophet. For hundreds and even thousands of years, you could say, God had sent a series of prophets to the nation of Israel who had promised them that one day he was going to send a king, a savior, to save them from their sins and ultimately to set everything right. And each one of the prophets with their bony fingers would point forward into the future and they would tell us a little bit more and then a little bit more and then a little bit more about this coming king. One of them would say that he was going to be mighty God, prince of peace, the, 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 the great counselor. Another would say that he was going to be the suffering servant of God who would give himself in the place of his people's sins. Another would say he would be the great conqueror who would put all the kingdoms of the world under his feet. And John the Baptist, John the baptizer in the Jordan River was the one who finally got to say, not just the king is coming, but that the king is here. He'd been out there for several months preaching this message of the coming kingdom of God, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand and what you need to do is the people of God, you, you are Jews, you need to be baptized for repentance, you need to be baptized for cleanliness. And so people would stream out into the wilderness from the city and to the banks of the river and John would, would baptize them in the waters of the river as preparation for the kingdom of God that was at hand. He had seen hundreds of people come like this all dressed in generally the same clothing, nobody standing out, nobody, nobody new, nobody unusual, and he, he baptized them by the hundreds for repentance. But one day, he saw a man coming over the horizon, and he stopped preaching, and he stopped baptizing, and he put his finger out, and he said, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, what would you have thought if you were in that crowd 
that day. You're just, you're just a normal resident of Jerusalem. Maybe you're a farmer, maybe you're a tradesman, and you've, you've heard about this man, John the Baptist, who looks like Elijah and preaches like Elijah and is saying that the kingdom of God, which we've all been waiting for for centuries, since, since David and really even since Genesis 3.15 that we talked about in the last session, you've been waiting for centuries for the kingdom of God finally to come. You've heard that John the Baptist is out there saying, it's at hand, it's here, it's close, it's close, and so you go out. Maybe you, maybe you take your family with you out to the river and you're waiting in line to be baptized for repentance of your sins by John in the river. And he stops. Points at this one man in the crowd who's just come over the edge of the hill and he says, behold, this, this one is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What would you think? Well, as a first century Jew, you would have known your Old Testament really well, and so lots of things would have flooded into your mind. You'd have thought about the prophets. You'd have thought about the sacrificial system. You'd have thought about the Passover. There would have been a lot of things that would come through your mind. You would know that a great king was supposed to come who was supposed to take away the sins of the world. That wouldn't have been surprising. Isaiah taught you that. You would have known that the king was known as the son of God. And that that son of God was going to take away the sins of the world. Psalm 2 would have taught you about the king being the son of God. What might have thrown you, though, is the phrase that this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the idea of a lamb of God taking away sin, that wouldn't have surprised you. You would have been able to click in on Exodus 12 and Exodus 20, and you would have thought, yes, it's true. In the sacrificial system, we take lambs on the Day of Atonement, and we slaughter those lambs, and that, in a certain way, takes away our sins, at least for a year. That wouldn't have surprised you. What would have surprised you, though, is that when John identified the Lamb of God who was taking away the sins of the world, he was pointing at a man. Not a lamb. Not an animal. But a person. And for a moment in your mind, you would have thought, well, that's, that's ominous. Because, because we all know, we all know what happens to a lamb that has been designated to be the animal that's going to take away the sins of the world. His throat is cut. And he dies. What does it mean then for John the Baptist to point at this man and say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Well, to answer that question, I've got to take you back all the way into the Old Testament, some 2,000 years even prior to Jesus coming over that mountain and John the Baptist seeing him and calling him. The Lamb of God. I've got to take you back to Exodus 12 and Exodus 20. I've got to take you back to the moment when God released his people from slavery in the land of Egypt. They'd been there for 400 years under the foot of Pharaoh. They'd been forced to make bricks. And then when they were making the bricks too fast and Pharaoh wanted to weaken them even, even further, they'd been forced to make bricks without straw, which made it even harder to make the bricks. And they had to make even more bricks or else be crushed underfoot by Pharaoh's soldiers. The book of Exodus tells us that God heard their cries. It says that God heard their cries and God knew their suffering. And God determined to act to release them from their slavery to Egypt. And so throughout the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 4 and moving on through chapter 10, 11, 12, God essentially went to war with Egypt's gods. The Bible calls God's war against Egypt's gods the ten plagues 
that God launched against Egypt. The word plague to us is unusual. It's not, it's not completely unfamiliar to us, but we tend to think of plagues as something like a disease that's hit the world. Plague, though, is just a word that means blow. It means, it means a hard hit. So when the Bible talks about the 12 plagues that God unleashed against Egypt, what it means is essentially 12 punches to the noses of the gods of the pharaohs. That's what it means. And if you study the plagues of Egypt, what you find is that each one of them is sort of tailor-made to take down one or more of the most famous gods of Egypt. So, for example, one of the most famous ones was the god of the Nile. And in turning the waters of the Nile to blood, God was showing that there's nothing the god of the Nile can do to stop me from raining death on the people of Egypt. There were gods that looked like gnats. There were gods that looked like cows. And then above all, there was Amun-Ra, the god of the sun. You remember what happened in the ninth plague, right? Amun-Ra, the sun, and therefore it's God as well, went out. God proved that he was even sovereign over Amun-Ra, the god of the sun. The tenth plague, the tenth blow that God landed against the gods of the pharaohs was the worst. Because God promised his people that on a certain night, he was going to kill all the firstborn of the nation of Egypt. The scary thing about the tenth plague, though, was that God told his people that unless they followed his instructions exactly, it wasn't just going to be the firstborn of the families of Egypt that were killed, but also the firstborn of the families of Israel. What was scary about that is the first time it had happened. In all the other nine plagues, when the hail fell, when the waters turned to blood, when cattle were covered in boils and, and all the rest of it, those plagues had only hit the people of Egypt, but not the people of Israel. They were settled in their own lands, their own villages on the edge of the Nile. And when the hail fell, you could literally walk out to the border of the town of Israel and you could see the hail falling on the Egyptian side of the line, but it's not falling on your side as an Israelite. You could walk out to the pasture lands and see that the cows on the Egyptian side had boils, but not the Israeli cows, which would have led you to think, yeah, you know, we're good. We're good with God. God doesn't, God doesn't send plagues on us. It's the Egyptians who are the evil ones. It's the Egyptians who deserve to die. It's the Egyptians who deserve to have the plagues raining down on them. But not us. Not us, the Israelites. Not us. So it was a shock when God said, on a certain night, I'm sending the angel of death to go throughout the land of Egypt. And he's going to kill the firstborn, not just of the people of Egypt, but of the people of Israel as well. What was that supposed to teach them? What was it supposed to teach them? It was supposed to teach them that they were no more innocent than the people of Egypt were. The people of Israel were no more innocent, they were no more righteous in God's sight than the people of Egypt. They were all sinners and they were all deserving of death. And God was about to teach them that in a really, really poignant way. The people were told, though, if you want to escape this, you follow my instructions. Here's what, here's what you do. You go out into your fields, and you find a lamb. You find a lamb that's spotless. You find a lamb that has no, no blemish, no broken legs, no, no deformed body parts, no, 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 no blemishes in its, in its wool, nothing wrong with the lamb at all. I need a, a pure and perfect lamb. And you take that lamb, and you bring it back to your, your home, and you, you slaughter the lamb, and then you take some of its blood and put it on the frame of the, the door of your house. And when the Passover when the, when the uh, angel of death passes over the land, he'll see the blood on the doorframe and he'll pass over your house. That's what the phrase Passover meant. 
It was a visceral thing, if you think about it. You think about what these families were asked to do. I I think it's easy to read the book of Exodus and kind of think, well, okay, you know, let's just go out and get a lamb and put some of its blood on the doorframe, and then we'll let the little lamb go frolic back to his mama out in in the field. You know, it'll be an easy thing. I don't think we think very much about what it actually meant. But when you do begin to think about it, it's, it's, a, it's a visceral and awful thing to consider having to do. I mean, you imagine a, a family, right? You got a father and a, and a mother here. Maybe you have several children. And one of them is, you know, 10-year-old ten, little, little Joshua, maybe. You know, common, common Jewish name, Joshua. 10-year-old little Joshua looks at his father and says, Father, what did, what did, what did the Lord mean when he said that all of the firstborn of Egypt and Israel are going to die. And the father has to look at his son and say, well, son, what he means is, is, is you. He means you are going to die if we don't follow the Lord's instructions. That, that, that's what he meant. And so the father takes little Joshua and he says, okay, okay, Joshua, since, since you're the one that's kind of on the hook here, you, you go with me and let's find the lamb. And so you walk out into the field with Joshua and you find a lamb that's, you know, he's, he's spotless. He's, he doesn't have any blemishes on him. There's nothing deformed. And you say, Joshua, let's take the lamb back to the house. And so you and the little boy take the, take the lamb back, and you gather the family around, and you do what's necessary to kill the lamb. You kneel down in front of the lamb, and you slit its throat, and, and the blood flies out. The lamb staggers around and, and dies. You think about that, and you imagine it, and you think about how visceral it is, and how awful it is, and yet the whole family would be standing around watching that little lamb stagger around and die, and they would know that that lamb is dying so that little Joshua would not have to. So you take some of the blood and you put it on the, on the doorframe. I'm sure the night was horrible, the night of the Passover. I mean, can you imagine it? The Israelite cities and villages were not far from the Egyptian cities and villages. So throughout the night, you probably hear families waking up and realizing that their firstborn son, firstborn daughter, was dead. Screams and cries going up from the people of Egypt. Maybe some screams and cries going up from houses next to you of unbelieving Israelites. It was horrible. But the Lord was showing in that night That even his own people were guilty of sin. Even his own people were worthy of death. And yet there was a way for them not to have to die. Even though their own lives were forfeit, even though they they deserved the penalty of death that had been handed down in the Garden of Eden, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yet they didn't have to. Something else, someone else could die in their place. God wasn't just going to sweep their sin away. Someone was going to have, to have to die. Someone had to pay the penalty of death. But as the angel passed through the cities with the drawn sword of judgment in his hand, executing the curse of Eden over and over again in every house, those Israelites who killed that lamb huddled in their homes and trusted in the blood of the lamb that was spread on their doorposts. As the decades wore on, God taught his people more about this idea that someone else could die in their place. He instituted an entire sacrificial system that called for this 
ritual of the Passover to be done again and again and again. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take another lamb, take another animal and slaughter it in front of the people. And that lamb was, was understood to be bearing the sins of the people and dying in their place so that they wouldn't have to, at least for another year. That also was a bloody affair. Lots of lambs, lots of animals died on the Day of Atonement. You'd as a family, bring your lamb or bring your pigeon or bring your cow or whatever, whatever you brought. And the, you, you would slaughter it in front of the priest and they would take the blood and pour it on the altar. And the belief, the reality was that sin was being pushed aside for another year, another year, another year. But it was a sad kind of atonement. It's hard to imagine that the day of atonement was something that the priest looked forward to very much. You just spend the day covered with blood. You take, you take one animal and you slaughter it and your robes are bloody and you take the animal and put its carcass on the fire and you burn it and you watch the smoke go up and you pour the blood on top of the altar as God commanded in the book of Leviticus. And then when it's over, you turn to the priest that's beside you that's been helping you do this and say, we have to do this again next year and the next and the next and the next. Now there's a time though when God taught his people Immediately after they went out of the land of Egypt, freed finally from their slavery, when he taught them that it wasn't always just going to be animals that died for them. He taught them that it was going to be somebody else entirely. If you've got a Bible, turn over to Exodus chapter 17. Because I want to show you something in the book of Exodus, one particular story that I think we tend to read over really quickly. But I think there is something incredibly important to learn here, and I want to show it to you. Because it helps us understand what God was trying to teach his people. Exodus 17 happens immediately after Israel and, or after Moses leads Israel out of the land of Egypt. They're wandering around in the wilderness the very first few days of what would become 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And Then we come to Exodus 17. Look at it with me. I'm going to read the first seven verses. It's written there, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. So the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, I think the first time you read that story, you can just kind of think, well, this is, this is one of those places in the book of Exodus where God brought water from the rock. It happens a couple of times, and this is one of those places, and that's a neat trick that God does. Let's move on to the next one. But I think God was teaching his people something more profound than just the fact that he could bring water out of a rock. I think he was teaching them something deeper and more profound about the Passover itself. Now, how does that work? Well, if you look at verse 1, 
You can see that, first of all, what's going on here is that the people have moved on into the wilderness, which is called sin. That's not the wilderness of sin. There have been a thousand sermons preached about the wilderness of sin and how you don't want to get lost in it, but that's not, it's not what that means. It's not, it's not the same word. It has nothing to do with it. It's just a name, and it means sin, right? The wilderness of sin. And they camped at a place called Rephidim. The problem with, what, with the people of Israel at this point, though, was that when they camped at this place called Rephidim in the wilderness of Sin, they had no water. And so what do the people of Israel decide to do when they realize they've got no water? Well, what they decide to do is quarrel with Moses and therefore with the Lord. You can see how that works if you look at verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, now look at, the, look at what he does here. It's, it's, it's fascinating what he does. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You see what he's doing there? They think that kind of all they're doing is quarreling with Moses about this thing. But Moses deflects it and says, look, I am the, the spokesman and the prophet of the Lord. So when you're quarreling with me, your problem is actually with him right? I'm not the one who took you out of slavery. He is. So if if you've got a problem, you're going to have to take that problem to him. You're not just quarreling with me. You're testing the Lord. What happens then, though, is fascinating because essentially the people of Israel decide to launch formal charges against Moses and therefore against God, whose, whose spokesman Moses is, for murder. They lodge charges against him, and as the story goes on, there are certain details that we'll talk about in just a minute, which tell us that basically this is a formal proceeding that the people of Israel are are, are launching uh, and are directing against God himself, and what they're saying is, God, you have taken us out of slavery in Egypt, but we are now, because of the lack of water in this wilderness, we are charging you with murdering us out here in the wilderness. Of course, the Punishment for a capital crime like murder was death. And so, you know, there in the next couple of verses, verse 4, Moses cries out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. In other words, they're almost ready to carry out capital punishment against me for murder. And God, you know, the only reason that they're going to throw stones at me and carry that out on me is because they can't get the stones high enough to stone you. They know you're the one that did it, but they can't stone you, so they're going to do it to me. You're charging God with Murder. Verse 5, look at verse 5. And what happens there? The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Now this is where it gets real formal, because essentially God says, listen, okay, fine. You want to launch formal charges against me for murder. You want to have a trial of me that's going to wind up in you stoning my representative Moses because you can't get at me? All right, fine, let's have a trial. Moses, call the assembly together and march the elders out in front of them. And this is what would happen in a formal trial. You'd call the assembly of the the people together, probably not, you know, all of them, but at least their representatives, and you would march the the judges, the elders of Israel, in front of them in a solemn procession, right? Because these are the judges that are going to carry out the trial, and the question is, who's guilty? Is God the one who's guilty of taking them out of their perfect circumstances in Egypt, out into the wilderness where there's no water, and killing them with no water? Is it God who's guilty? Or is it the people who are guilty of grumbling against God, of not believing in God, of rebelling against God even, and they're complaining against him? Look at the next phrase there in verse 5. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff 
with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, if you know the story of Exodus, you know that, that that's an ominous thing. For the staff with which Moses to strike, with which Moses struck the Nile, to be brought into this situation at all is an ominous thing. Because what is that staff used for throughout the book of Exodus? That staff is a staff of judgment that is used to rain death and judgment down on the people of Egypt. Moses strikes the Nile with that staff, and it turns to blood, and people die. He strikes the sand of the nation of Egypt with that staff of judgment. The sand turns to gnats, and people die. He holds the staff out over the, 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 the Red Sea, and it splits, and the people of Israel walk through it, but then he holds it out over it again, and what happens? The waters crash in and kill the armies of Egypt. It's a staff of judgment. That's a staff of death. And when you read in Exodus 17 that the elders of Israel are supposed to pass before the people for this formal judicial proceeding, and then you see that the staff of death and judgment is coming, you're supposed to think, uh-oh, somebody's about to get hit. The staff of judgment is about to fall on somebody. And the question is, is that staff going to fall on God for murder or on the people for unbelief? Well, I mean, the answer is clear from Exodus. The staff's not going to fall on God. It's not God who's guilty of murdering his people. For one thing, they're not even dead yet. It's not God who's been unfaithful. God has been unfailingly faithful to his people. When they want water, he gives them water. When they want food and complain about food, he gives them miraculous food from heaven that tastes like wafers and honey. It shows up every morning. It's like the Garden of Eden. They don't have to do anything for it. They just gather it up every single day. And miraculously, it's there on the face of the desert every day. And they eat it free of charge because they complained about God and God gave them what they wanted. And then you know what happens next in the story? The people get tired of eating the honey-flavored bread. And they say, God... Thank you for this miraculous bread, but we want meat. We're tired of the bread. No more carbs, please. We need the protein. Give us meat. They complain about God because of the miraculous food. And you know what God does then? He gives them the meat. He causes a great wind to blow up, and he sends them quail, and their camps are littered with quail. And he actually says to them, you know what? You want quail? You want meat? Well, guess what? I'm going to give you enough meat. I'm going to give you enough quail that you're going to have quail meat coming out your noses. And then they start to complain that there are too many quail around. It's not God who's guilty of faithlessness to his people. It's the people who are guilty of faithlessness to God. So when the elders of, this, of the, the people march out and Moses comes out bearing the staff of God, you're supposed to be thinking, uh-oh, 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 this is not good for the people of Israel. They're about to eat the same judgment that God poured out on Egypt. But then something just completely unexpected happens. It almost, it almost seems like it short-circuits the story at first. If you look at verse 6, it looks like all of this drama of this, this formal trial just sort of, you know, just just you know, goes away, just dithers away. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel, in the name of the place Masai and Mary Bob, because the people quarreled with God. Now, what, what, what happened? It moved so fast, but what happened? 
You got all the assembly of Israel gathered there. You got the elders coming out. Moses marches out with the staff, and God says, All right, go strike the rock, and water's gonna come out. I'll, you want water? I'll give you water. So Moses walks over to the rock, and he takes the staff, and he strikes the rock, and rock, and waters come out. And the people drink. Yay! Story over. What does that mean? Because you and I, at the end of verse 5, we're waiting on judgment to fall. We're waiting on, we're waiting on somebody to be judged. And we know who's guilty. That, that staff of judgment ought to fall on the people of Israel, but then the rock gets hit. What's going on with that? Well, let me ask you a question about a detail in verse 6 that I think we overlook. When Moses struck the rock, where was God? Look at it more carefully. Behold... I will stand before you there on the rock and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. You see what God was teaching his people there? He was teaching his people, yep, you're the guilty ones. You're the ones who are guilty of faithlessness and grumbling and complaining against me. You have failed to believe in me. You've sinned and rebelled against me and judgment's got to fall. But where does the judgment fall? Not on God's people finally, but on God as he stands on the rock. And the result is that life issues forth. You know, there's a reason that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul calls Jesus the rock. It's because exactly what happened here in Exodus 17 happened on Calvary when Jesus died on the cross. His people, you and I, who are believers in Jesus Christ, deserved for the rod of judgment to fall on us. Jesus didn't deserve that. Jesus was perfectly sinless. And yet when the fullness of time came, when the moment arrived, the rod of judgment fell on him. The sword of judgment that had been hanging over humanity for 6,000 years fell on Jesus and not on us. He died so that we could live. By his wounds, we were healed. What does that mean for us? How does that, how does that work out in terms of good news for, for us? Well, I mean, think of it like this. I mean, for all the years of your life, I don't know how old you are. Maybe you're, maybe you're 11 or 12, 13, 14. Maybe you're 45, 85. I don't know how old you are. But for all the years of your life, essentially, you've been... You've been amassing a record of your life, all your thoughts, all your deeds, all your words, all your actions, everything about you has been written down on, on this record that, that, that God knows everything about, right? You know, I don't, I don't know. The Bible talks about books in which deeds are written. I don't know if that's meant to be metaphorical or real. I don't know if they're actual books, but, but somewhere, at least in the mind of God, everything that you've ever known, everything that you've ever been motivated by, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever considered has been logged. There's a record of your life somewhere. And what the Bible says is that because you're a child of Adam, because you have made decisions like Adam did in the Garden of Eden to rebel against God, basically what you've been doing with the record of your life is filling it up with, let's just say, red ink, right? It's all bad stuff. It's rebellion against God. She did this. He did this. He thought that. He was motivated by that. He did this thing which looked good on the outside, but actually he was just trying to glorify himself and make himself look good. This, 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 and this, and this, and this is a long record of life, all of it in red ink. 
And the problem is that the Bible says that when you stand before God to give an account and you hold up your record of life, God looks at it, it's all red ink, and he just says, yeah, you're guilty as charged. Everything that Adam did in the garden, you've been doing it since the day you were born. So be gone from me forever. It's a kind of sobering thought when you realize that, right? It's just just like, wow, okay. And a lot of people, when they hear that, think, all right, so I I know I've got this record of life. I know it's full of red ink. I know that I've got to stand and give an account before God. So so what am I going to do? Okay, here's here's the plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I got all this red ink. I've had it going for 45, 46 years now, or 12 years, or whatever it is. And what I'm going to do is that instead of writing red ink on my record now, what I'm going to try to do is outweigh all that red ink with a bunch of green ink. So you dip your pen in the green ink, and you try to be really good from here on out, right? I'm just going to green ink, green ink, green ink. And so when I hold up this thing before God, maybe there will be more green ink than red ink, and God will say, you know, congratulations, you're not as guilty as I thought you were. Welcome to heaven. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. There's a couple of reasons that that's not going to work. One of those reasons is just that the red ink is still there, right? And the Bible says that you, you can't just rebel against God and, and then change your mind and everything be okay. You still rebelled. You still sinned. All of a sudden, fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, not, not a whole life where everything is sin, but the wages of even one sin, one rebellion against God, is death. It's not something you can just reverse when you declare war against God. It's a a final thing. Sin is sin, and the red ink is still there. That's one problem. It's why it's not going to work to just show God, you know, look at all this green ink. I I know that red is still there, but look at all the greens. It's not going to work. The other problem with it is that the Bible says that even when you're trying to write with green ink, the problem is that even your green ink that you're trying to put on the record is tinged with red. So you start trying to write green ink. You start trying to be nice to people. You start trying to do what's right and not do what's wrong. But you look inside yourself and into your motives and why you're doing it, and you realize that, oh, my goodness, even my motives are bad. (laughs) I'm trying to love people and be kind to people, but I realize that only part of that is to glorify God. The other part is so that people will think well of me. And so you just keep writing and writing and writing, only you notice that the green is tinged with red itself. (laughs) And you hold that up before God, and he says, guilty is, guilty is charged. Even your motivations, even your, even your thoughts are sinful and rebellious against me. But here's what was happening when Jesus lived and then died. Because for the same, in the same way that you were amassing a record of life that had all this red ink on it, so Jesus lived 33 years and amassed a record of life of his own. Only in Jesus' case, there's no red ink in it at all, the Bible says. It's all green. Every word that he ever said, everything that he ever did, every motivation that he ever had was all in green ink, which if you think about it, is a kind of mind-blowing thing. I mean, I, you know, I, it's not that hard for me to think of, of being, it's not that hard for me to think of Jesus being sinless for 33 years. If all we're talking about are words and deeds and thoughts, And the reason it's not so hard for me to think about that is because I literally think that I can do that for three seconds. Like, I can stand here in front of you. Watch. I think I did that. Because I stood here. I didn't do anything, so I don't think I sinned in action right there. I didn't say anything, so I don't think I sinned in word. 
I didn't, I kind of tried to clear out my mind, right? But so I, I don't think I sinned in, in thought right there. And I managed to do it for three seconds. So I don't think that's utterly foreign to me as a human being. And so if I just multiply that by 42 billion or whatever it is, I can imagine Jesus managing to not sin in word or thought or action for 33 years. I can imagine that. If we go to motivations, it becomes an entirely different thing already because even when I stood there for three seconds, in the fourth section, I was feeling pretty proud of myself because <laughs> I managed to make it three seconds. But, but with Jesus, even the motivations, like all the way down to the bottom of his heart, it's all green ink. There's nothing at all that breaks his fellowship with God. So when Jesus shows back up in heaven and shows the record of his life, his father says, well done, good and faithful servant. You are justified. You're righteous. As the great king of the universe, for the first time in all of history, I declare you to be righteous. Welcome to your inheritance in heaven. But here's, here's the glorious thing. Here's what we Christians talk about it as being the good news. What the Bible says is that when you become a Christian, there's this thing that happens between you and Jesus that people for 2,000 years have called a great exchange. It's a great exchange that happens between you and Jesus. So on the one hand, what happens in the great exchange is that Jesus gets your record of life with all that red ink. It's transferred, it's imputed, it's credited to him, and he dies because of it. God the Father looks at all of your sin, all the red ink, and he says that deserves death, and he pours out death on his son. That's what Jesus gets in the great exchange. What you get, though, is that Jesus' perfect record of of, of a righteous life, all the green ink gets credited, transferred, imputed to you, and now God looks at that, and he says, you're righteous. It's not that you yourself are righteous. I mean, God knows what what happened here. But he looks at that and he says, I am going to declare you judicially, formally righteous and, and, and heir to all the blessings of heaven, not because of anything you did. Your record of life got crucified on the cross with my son. But because of what my son did for you, you are now heir to all the blessings of heaven. I mean, I mean, you realize, right, that all the blessings of eternity and all the blessings of heaven are yours not because they come to you directly, but because they are first Jesus's, and as a Christian, you're embracing him in faith? And that, that's why it's so important that Jesus rose from the dead and is not still in the grave. You remember Jesus' teaching that whatever happens to the, to, the, uh, to the vine also happens to the branches, and that when you become a Christian, you're actually a branch that's being grafted into the vine that is Jesus? Why, why does he give that teaching? Why does he talk about that? Well, it's because whatever happens to the vine happens also to the branches. So if the vine is dead and in the grave, and you are grafted into the vine as one of the branches, guess where you are too? In the grave. But if you're, a vine, if you're a branch that's been grafted onto a vine that has been resurrected to new eternal life, guess what's happened to you also? You're a branch and you have been resurrected to newness of life. All, all the blessings of eternity that we talk about, being justified, sanctified, glorified, all of it, it's not that it comes just directly to you. like bypass, It's not as if God says, hey, Jesus, watch what I do to these people now because of what you did for them in this transactional kind of thing. I'm going to justify them, and I'm going to sanctify them and glorify them. It's not what happens. Friend, you're justified, you're declared righteous as one of the branches 
not because God looks at the branch and says, I justify you. It's because he looks at the vine and says, you're righteous. And everyone who's connected to you is righteous as well. When you rise from the grave on the last day, it's not going to be because God just snaps his fingers and calls your name and brings you back from the dead. That's why Paul says that Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection. The vine has come back to life. And if you're united to him, you will live again at the last day too. You're sanctified. You're being made holy because the vine has already been holy. You're going to be glorified on the last day because the vine has been glorified. That's what Paul means when he says that you are right now as a Christian seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. You're obviously not. This is a nice building, but it's not the heavenly realms. But Paul can say you're seated in the heavenly realms because Jesus is already seated in the heavenly realms. And if you're a Christian, you're united to him so that what has happened to him has already happened to you. That's what he means when he says that. This great exchange that takes place where Jesus gets your sin and you get all the glories of eternity that he earned. Now, what an incredible thing. And, and, and why, why would Jesus do that? Why would he do that? It's not a good deal for him. Why would he do that? There's no reason at all. No reason at all. Except love. Love. You know, what, you, know, you know what the two titles are in the New Testament that are applied to Jesus sort of over and over again? One is that he's the son of God, right? We've talked about that, the son of God. Another is that he's the image of the invisible God. Do you know what we as human beings are called all the way back in Genesis, like Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4? Do you know how we as humanity are referred to in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4? We are sons of God. And we, with a, with a little s, and we are the image and likeness of God, little i. Jesus is the son of God, big s. We are the sons of God, little s. He's the image of God, big i. We're the image of God, little i. Do you see, do you see what's happened? Do you see what happened when God created human beings? He was making for his son a gift that looked like him. And he gives his church to Jesus it says, they're yours, they're yours. They're a motley crew. They're going to mess up, and you're going to have to die for them. But they're yours. And Jesus said, I, I love them. I love them. I'm not going to let them die. Father, they are your great gift to me, and I'm not going to let them go. So I'll do what's necessary to save them. Friends, some, some, of, you, some of you need to know this Jesus tonight. And just like we've been talking about all, all evening, you need, to, you need to put your faith in this Jesus. You need to understand yourself to be a rebel and a sinner against God. You need to understand who Jesus is. You need to understand him as the great son of God, as the great king of kings, as the great redeemer, the, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And you need to size him up and see if you really think he is who he says he is. And some of you right at the point of saying, I, I do, I really do, I really do think Jesus is who he says he is. I really do think that what the Bible says about him is true, and I believe that he can do what he says he can do in saving sinners like me. 
And if you're at that point, then even tonight, you need to, you need to just look into heaven. Just, just look into heaven and say, Jesus, I, I can't do it. I can't save myself. I've rebelled against your father. I've rebelled against you. I, like Adam, I didn't want your authority over me. I wanted to be the high king of my own life. And so I sinned. And because of that, I, need, I, I, I deserve to die. And then you need to say, but, but Jesus, I don't want to die. I don't want to be in rebellion against you anymore. And so I'm coming to you to take mercy from your hand. I mean, you know, his hand's out right now. It won't, it won't always be. There's going to come a day. He promises us this in the Bible. There's going, to be a, there's going to be a day when the king's hand, which is right now extended in mercy, is going to close and retract, and the day of mercy will be over. But Paul says, right now, today, this is still the day of salvation. This is still the day when the king's hand is extended. Friend, don't let this day pass. Don't let it close. Don't go to bed and close your eyes until you've come to him and taken mercy from his hand. It'll determine everything about you and about your relationship with God for all of eternity.